0: And welcome to episode 389 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brookes.
1: And from Jacksonville, Florida, I'm Carlos Welch. What are you doing in Jacksonville, Carlos? Down in Jacksonville. Um uh basically I made my um at this point, I was gonna say annual, but at this point it's um Biannual. I always get bi and semi confused. Bi is everything. I think years.
0: they literally are, are altered. Like, it, it, it could, by at least, can mean both, I think, which is very confusing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, my biannual trip home across the country, uh, my a road trip across the country, uh, where I drive from Vegas back to Atlanta, I did that this year. Um, last year, I basically just took a flight. And so I haven't been driving home every year like I used to in the past, but every other year. Um, so this is one of those years where I've driven home. And um, maybe we haven't talked about this on the air, but I'm no longer able to keep my job as a substitute teacher. Have we talked about that?
0: No, I'm this is this is news to
1: me. Okay, so this is what happened with the um substitute teaching thing. So at the start of the pandemic. I did not go back to substitutes teach because there was a fucking pandemic. And um because I did not go back to Portland. Well, first of all, let me let me start from the beginning. I when I got the job in Portland, I had to have a Portland address. And so I got a P.O. box in Portland and basically just used the um, post office's address as my address on my job application. Mm-hmm. And that all worked out fine up until the pandemic where basically they were sending my mail to that address, including like W-2 forms and like, you know, check stubs, different stuff I need for tax purposes. So when I didn't go back up there for about two years due to the pandemic, that stuff was kind of like piling up in that PO box. Uh, So when I finally got a chance to go up there, I grabbed all that stuff. And then I also had them for the future send stuff to my Atlanta PO box. So that was all good up until this year when I was planning to go back to um, start subbing again. But before I could do that, they contacted me about me having a Georgia address address in the system as opposed to a portland address and when i explained why i no longer have the portland address and they're like they basically said well you can't work in portland if you live in georgia <laughs> <laughs> and so the so basically i would have had to go back up to portland and just to get another po box so i could change my address back to a portland address to keep the job and honestly as a job that I probably wouldn't work much more anyway. So it didn't seem worth it to me because this is all like after I've started, like the last year or two have been like ridiculous in terms of uh, my poker results. Mm -hmm. So they'll probably, I probably won't need to sub again for a while, fingers crossed. And if I do, I can just reapply for the job. So I didn't want to like, you know, pay for a um, flight up there just to get a PO box and then come back. So I, so I basically told them, like, I re- reluctantly resigned my position. <laughs> and the point of that is normally around this time of year, I would be in Portland subbing after the WSOP. Um, but because I can't sub this year, I decided to come home a bit earlier. So I was actually going to leave at the beginning of October. But just as I was about to leave, WSOP kind of like at the last minute announced an online version of the WSOP. So I stayed and played that. Luckily I did because uh, I won a circuit ring and I got fifth in another bracelet event. But uh, when that was all over around the middle of October is when I headed east. So I'm I'm back on the east coast or the southeast for probably like a month or a month and a half longer than I normally would be this time of year. And I just could not bear spending that entire time in the cold it's not cold right now, but it's going to be cold in, in the Atlanta area. So I'll be bouncing back and forth between here and um, Jacksonville for sure. And if Jacksonville is not to my liking, I would probably go even further south into Florida just to uh, find some sun. <laughs> uh, so I will be in the area. And while I was here, I figured I would play on the um, Best Bet Live stream. So best bet jacksonville is a card room down here not a casino but i think it's primarily just poker and i think they got like i don't know they you know these these places that have like poker on one side and then like other casino games on the other side but not slot machines yeah california
0: has a lot of those like it's like cards are legal, but gambling like cards are somehow like a subset of of gambling which is legal (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no slots but cars are fine uh so it's one of those deals and uh they do a live stream that seems easier to get on than some of the other live streams out there and also they stream more games than most places i've seen so i figured i would um give it a shot and it was pretty easy to get on in fact i could have played twice but i only wanted to play once and yeah got down there and um the little i saw of the room it seemed pretty nice and um yeah i enjoy playing on the stream i, I enjoy the stream i de- I don't and you know this i don't enjoy live cash so <laughs> there's always this like battle between my hate of live cash and my love of like attention and cameras and, <laughs> and seeing other people's whole cards <laughs> like like i'm kind of like weigh in those two sides of the thing that that's why I even went to to do it and then Nana said now that it's over uh I probably won't do it again I was bored as hell but it turned out pretty well for me um it was a two2 game with a 500 dollar Max buy-in and I slightly more than um doubled my stack and got out of there in about two and a half hours so The best part for me was nobody talked to me, (laughs) which was great. (laughs) Nobody tried to force me to talk. There was one guy that started to get to the point where he might want to berate me, but it didn't get too far. And the table talk was okay. One of my biggest things about playing, why I don't like playing live is because usually the table talk is like, annoying or offensive to me or something and i just like rather not be around those sort of conversations but this wasn't bad at all and everybody kind of just let me do my thing uh the commentators gave me some shit for um playing conservatively was the words they used and i had like a 23 v pip which is like probably too high for a full ring um cash game but but that was the lowest vpip for anyone in the game, right? Yeah, <laughs> lowest vpip of anyone in the game, and the average vpip was probably like double that. So, only in these live streams can you play more hands than theoretically you should be able to and still be considered the table knit. Um, yeah. but it wasn't like you know, um, a negative. They did say they might vote me off the island. Those are the guys' exact words. Vote me off the island for not playing hands. Uh but not it wasn't like it wasn't like over the top. I wasn't offended by that at all. I was kinda like laughing to myself. I was like, I kinda hope they don't uh vote me off the island because I feel like I'm get I'm I'm playing closer to correct than any of these other players. And usually that's a good way to get kicked out of like social type of games is by trying to win. <laughs> uh and so that didn't happen. Um, uh, but hell, even if it did, I wasn't like having a great time anyway. So I wouldn't have minded it. But uh, yeah, that was pretty much my overall experience of playing down in Jacksonville.
0: Now, was that something where kind of anyone could show up and just be like, hey, I would like to play in this, in this dream game? Or did you have to pull a rank of BLA? Do you know who I am? I'm V. Carlos Welch.
1: No, no, I didn't have to um, do that. And I think pretty much anybody can get in. I actually like that's, that's kind of a double-edged sword, sword in that I thought maybe I would have to do that. And I thought when you, go to sign up that you would have to do like a bio sheet or something to like see why they would want you on there. No, it was none of that. In fact, this is kind of what I mean by a double S sword. When I got there, I played for two and a half hours and the whole time I was there before I got there. And also after I left, not a single person knew who I was, not a single person said anything to me. And that can be a good or a bad thing in terms of like, for me personally, like you know, being an introvert, it's great. But for me, you know, publicly as someone who needs to like market myself as a poker coach or, you know, as a um, poker personality, it's kind of a bad thing to um, be on the stream with a decent number of viewers and nobody knows me, even in the chat, like nobody in the chat knew me either. So uh, this was kind of like the days back before I was the Carlos Welch, was, which was kind of nice, kind of nice to kind of fly on the radar that way. But part of me wanting to do these sort of things is to raise my public profile. And that didn't happen at all. If anything, it probably lowered it because I play like such a nit, according to the um, <laughs>
0: commentators. Uh, is, is this available like as a replay on YouTube if if listeners would like to see you play? <laughs> or see so you not play i guess with your conservative 23 percent
1: yeah it's funny because i just uh put the uh link into the patreon one of the uh patreon um subscribers asked for it and i dropped the link in and said i played for two and a half hours but you know i didn't play very many hands and another one joked that uh can you just clip the two hands you play instead of making us watch the whole two and a half hours (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's basically it's not that far from the it's not that far from the truth either um but yeah it's like it's a weird world man poker poker is a weird world in that for a lot of people who desperately need poker coaching they would not want to hire me uh, because basically I would tell them to kind of knit it up like I did in that environment. And that's just not what they want to do. So I think my students and people who kind of already know me and understand why I only played a quarter of the hands. (laughs) uh, I was the the people who understand why that's the case. They would uh, enjoy and appreciate um, watching the stream and, basically if anything those guys can watch the stream and point out mistakes that other people are making um because there was like one guy with like a 60 percent pip or something and of course he was like the is, is that too much star of the stream <laughs> 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 yeah yeah probably about four times too much <laughs> and he, he he was like the star of the stream and like all the commentators knew him and like i'm pretty sure everybody in chat loved him so like it's a different world, man. It's like bizarro world if you're actually trying to make money. But most people in these game, in these sort of games, aren't really there to make money. They're just there to have fun.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing with um what you mentioned before about coaching and uh, you know I all the people that I work with and I think we probably have a, a similar demographic. Obviously, they're all you know serious about wanting to get better at poker. Most of them are not professional players, and it's not like Playing perfectly is not the only thing that, that they care about. And I do find there's a little bit of, um, you know, how much do you kind of tell people to do things that are, that would like make them slightly more money, but be less fun for them? Like, I guess I I, I try not so much to like to tell people to do things. I, I, this isn't like a judgment on you, just like how I think about it. Um, Like, I, not to like tell people to do things as much as like help them appreciate what the trade offs are, where it's like, okay, I mean, I, I I'm sure I've told the story on air before, but I really like it. Um, I, I had a student who you know I, I told him like I don't think you should be calling these uh, raises with small pairs in, in early position like i understand you're you're going for set mining but I don't think the math really works out on this and we talked about it a little bit like how to how to think through that and what the risks are of, of calling an early position and things like that and he came back to me our next session and he was like you know I, I thought about what you said about the the set mining and I, I mean I'm convinced it's a small mistake but it sounded like he thought it was kind of just a, a small mistake and I just really enjoy doing it like I like you know I play poker for fun and I like having that chance of of winning a big pot. I think I'm gonna keep doing it. I was like, okay, that's fine. That's like as long as you understand like what is what is the cost of, of doing it. Like if 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 you're you know comfortable saying like I realize this isn't perfect, but I want to do it anyway because it's fun, uh more power to you. I just want to help people understand, you know, what um what the cost and, they, and there's other things that like, okay, if you really enjoy calling like two X pot shelves with their flush draws on the turn, like you're giving up a lot more by doing that, which again is fine as long as you understand that, that that's what you're doing. But I feel like that's you know kind of my role as a coach is at least to help you understand or help you make, uh, informed decisions. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing because you're right that you know people don't necessarily, there, there are things that people maybe would rather, would be happier if you didn't open their eyes to, <laughs> even though that is like what they're, <laughs> what they're paying you for.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how I feel anytime I eat Oreos. It's like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I kind of like them. And I'll do it occasionally. And so, but as long as I don't make a habit out of it, do it for a living, I could be, I, sh- I should be fine. And I kind of look <laughs> at that as the same thing. In fact, in playing this game, I actually played some hands that I knew I shouldn't have played just because I didn't want to be like, <laughs> I didn't like, uh, and this is kind of like a little bit of peer pressure, but um yeah, it, it's like, so there was a hand where I opened ace 10 offsuit from early position. I don't know if it was under the gun. This was an eight-handed table. Maybe it was from like low jack or something. And I'm thinking this is probably not great in a cash game with no uh, um anties. But am I really gonna follow this on stream? Like I'm like I'm inviting <laughs> I'm inviting the ire of the commentators if I don't open this hand. <laughs> so anything that was close like that that I knew were pro- that that probably should have been a fold. I did open one or two hands like that uh, that I wouldn't otherwise if I wasn't being watched by the commentators. And so it was hilarious to me for me to have done that and then also hear them still criticize me for uh, being the table knit with the 23, uh, 23B pip. Nothing is ever good enough. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly certain that Ace Ten off was not an open. Uh, But I didn't I didn't have any that were super insane. Like I actually I did make a kind of a snap fold in a spot where I thought I was going to get some shit for it, and it's probably not a uh, GTO fold. But I just realized that you know uh, I don't need to deal. Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm uh, not, and they did, they actually didn't have it this time. <laughs> the guy, they got, so this was an interesting hand. So this was like one of the few pots that wasn't straddled. And you know how much I hate straddling, but so we're playing 2 2, and there was like maybe three or four limps. And I'm in the small blind with pocket jacks. I'm making $40. <laughs> I'm making $40 into a pot of like 10, maybe. Got two collars. Uh, and it was a King High Rainbow board, and I just check folded to the second guy's see bet. And I don't think that's going to be GTO approved. But I just realized, like these people are just going to give it away when I actually have a strong hand. Uh, this hand strikes me as a a bluff catcher, mm-hmm. and I haven't identified this guy as someone who's you know bluffing too often, and so. I'm not here to guess. I just like snap folded without thinking about it. And that went by fairly quickly on the stream where maybe they didn't even see it, but that was one in my mind that I thought they were gonna give me some shit for like, oh, he didn't even think about it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that might've been a small mistake, but like the guy, so the one guy who I was actually targeting, uh, he limped with fours and he called my big raise. And honestly, I don't hate his call just because I was playing pretty tight. If he has a set, he's going to get paid because he's been playing pretty crazy. And we were deep enough. I think we, we had like $500 each or something. The second guy had queen 10 of spades. So he so there was a bunch of limps. Instead of him raising the limpers, he limps behind for $2. And then when I make it 40, he like over calls with queen 10 of spades. And he's not deep enough to do that. And the board came like king 8, five or something it was like a really dry board with no spade i checked the guy with the pocket fours checks and then this guy who hasn't been doing much so far decides to bluff a queen to the space and in my mind i was thinking well, you said this guy probably always has it he probably just has a king here or like some sort of draw that he's gonna like continue betting later and i'm not gonna call twice so i'm not even gonna call once but apparently he had like a you know, complete air ball bluff in that spot. But this is where I would say a bad fold is better than a bad call because I think he's way more likely to have a king there than like Queen 10 of Spades. Um, but I was actually, if the other guy bet, I probably would check him call him down all three streets a second pair just because he was going off. Uh, but I hadn't seen that from this, uh, the guy who actually won the hand yet. So,
0: well, I mean, you've also got just like the multi-way dynamic of if if the, the guy with force bets, if, if I'm following the action correctly, if the guy with force bets, then the other player folds and it's back on you closing the action versus the scenario you were actually in. The queen ten bets, action's on you, and there's still the other player who, I mean, in retrospect, we find out he had force, but you still have that other player behind you. So, uh, I mean, I feel like if, if folding Jackson's is a mistake, there, it's it's got to be a quite small one um, with with another player yet to act behind you as well.
1: Yeah, especially with a player like this guy. Because honestly, if – so he had pocket fours, and the bottom card is like a five. If he had like ace five, he probably would have called that dude's bet. So if – let's say I check, he checks, guy bets, I call with jacks, and then this guy over calls with bottom pair, I'm done on the turn anyway. <laughs> so one of these two guys who – I have both of them beat, but I'm not going to be able to get the showdown because, like, one of the stickiest players in the game has overcalled after our call. I'm not liking my chances on later streets. So, uh, like, when you say, you know, me not closing the action. Uh, generally when people say something like that, they're thinking maybe this other guy's like slow playing the king or maybe this other guy's going to like bluff at some point. No, he might just make a bad call. And that's also going to freeze me on the later street. So you're right with him being behind me and with him being like, you know, kind of a wild card. It just put too many variables uh, in play on turns and rivers for me to make a thin bluff catch in that spot against the guy who I haven't seen bluff yet.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that. That I probably would have done the same thing. It doesn't sound like too. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the, you told me the commentators gave you shit for it, but um, I think that's that would be a case of them overvaluing the fact that you had a good hand before the flop, right? You gotta just check full jacks there, like an, an underpair to the board in a multi-way pot facing a bet with you know, two streets still to come and a player to act behind you. Like, that's not that good of a hand anymore, even though it was jacks before the flop.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that was... Um... That was a fun one. Um, uh, oh, this was a fun hand. And this one also kind of went by quickly. There was a little bit of a comment on this one, but not as much. I thought that this was gonna be like, you know, I thought brains were gonna explode on this hand, but it didn't <laughs> happen. So what was the pre flop action? I wanna say it was a single raise pot. I think I called an open in middle position with ace five suited. Which honestly, I'm not, I'm not even sure if that's good, but uh, it was one of those hands that didn't want to fold uh, because it was on a live stream. And then the guy who I was targeting the entire time, he overcalled with Ace Jack. And the flop came Ace Jack X with a flush draw, I think, or maybe the flush straw came in on the, the turn. But in any event, the guy with two pair of bets. He's got top two. I have top pair in a five. He bets, I call. No, flop check through, I believe. And then on the turn, he bets and I call. And I think the turn put a flusher on the board. Oh, and also the turn was a five. So now I make a weaker top. I make a weaker two pair on the turn. But this guy's been bluffing his face off. And so I have this two pair on the turn. I think he doesn't have much. So I actually just call when I make two pair and then on the river, the flush comes in and he makes a small bet. Uh, and I actually make a small raise with the worst two pair. And he like snap folded and started telling the table this is kind of what I meant about like a guy was getting ready to break me, but he didn't take it too far. He like snap folded, and he was like telling the girl next to him that um, um, clearly this net has a flush. <laughs> like, like. <laughs> he's like, like he's like he's, like he's like, he's like, he's like, what else could it be? What else could it be? And he like, and in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, this guy is either bluffing his face off, and he has nothing. But if he like rivet bottom pair or something he's probably bad enough to call a small raise so although the flush guy there i actually raised my week or two pair for value for very small size and he snap folded top two and when i saw this is a little bit embarrassing <laughs> you might if you watch the stream you might notice this when he snap folded and i saw his hand my thought was Get these chips out of the pot as soon as possible for before, before you know he claims that he called or something. Uh, <laughs> and I was I was stacking my chips so fast that I forgot to tip the dealer. And then for like the for like the next thirty minutes to an hour, I was trying to like remind myself like did I tip that dealer in man? So before so before I left. Um, uh, I made sure like as I was leaving, I just like tipped him, uh, just randomly tipped him just in case I didn't tip him at the time. And then when I went back and watched the stream, I think I, I didn't tip him um in the hand. So yeah, that happened. Um <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it was funny. Like I almost panicked when I saw his hand and I'm thinking, thinking because like I don't, you know, I don't pay enough attention at the table in terms of like Cause like mentally I'm trying to like not be there. So sometimes I'm like sort of like deep in my thoughts about the game and I'm not paying attention to the environment. Mm. So when I saw his hand flip over, I wasn't hundred percent sure if he had called or folded. But then when I saw the dealer start to grab his hand and like the, the dealer's actions kind of led on to me that he had folded. That and the fact that he was, you know, kinda of semi me to that lady. And when I was like realized like, oh shit, he didn't call, I was like, fuck, let me get these chips out of here for before they <laughs> find a way to take it from me. Yeah. Yeah. And the commentators kinda like commented on that hand, but they didn't understand what was going on there either. And in fact they said that um they basically said that I bluffed the guy. And as if i was trying to bluff them so they didn't realize i was just going for a thin value raise against the guy who was giving it away and that the, their commentary on that hand maybe lasted like five seconds but anytime somebody get in like aces versus kings pre, that's like the most exciting thing they've ever seen in their life
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'll just say quickly on, on the tipping thing i think you handled that well, and the the reason I'm highlighting that is because it is the thing that I you know see come up. It, it happens often that you don't remember. You legitimately don't remember whether you tip the dealer, and I think it's much better in those cases just to err on the side. You know, like the danger of giving someone an extra dollar or whatever um, <laughs> is just like pretty small because you know often people will ask, and my understanding is I think a lot of places they're not allowed to like I'm pretty sure there are rules against them like really aggressively soliciting tips whether like answering a question like that honestly is, is okay like I think a lot of people even if it's like within the rules I think a fair number of people are uncomfortable with that so they'll often say like I think sometimes they'll even say like yes you did um it, but I think it just like it, it puts them in, in a pretty awkward spot and ultimately the way I think about it is like it is our responsibility as players to tip the dealers and like if you're not sure if you did it then like that's kind of your slip up and I think it's better for, for you or us, you know, to, to address that ourselves or or take the responsibility that on ourselves rather than putting it on the dealers to like, um, inform us or put them in an awkward spot where they have to either like decline it or do something that's maybe like might be frowned upon by their bosses or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know what? They are providing us a service that we actually want. So I definitely don't mind paying for that now. Uh, I did have a bit of a funny experience uh, with the cocktail waitress because they are providing a service that I don't want. (laughs) Uh, And when we sat down for the stream, the cocktail waitress said, okay, so this place charges for drinks. You don't get free drinks while you play. But if you're playing on a live stream, the first drink is free. And so that was like her selling point to get me to like, you know, get a free water that I would have to pay her a dollar for. Yeah. And uh, I was like, she's like, uh, would you like a free drink? I was like, no, I'm good. Oh, you don't want the water or anything? I was like, no, I'm <laughs> good. You know, it's free. I was like, no, I'm good. I was like, yeah, it's free, but it's actually going to cost me a dollar. And this is not a service I want. So I think I pissed her off by not, by not taking the free drink. <laughs> Hashtag Nate <make> gas. <laughs> I'm sorry, ma'am. I had water before I left home. I'm good. <laughs> But yeah, if anybody's gonna go back and watch this stream, I should apologize for the spoilers um but it is kind of cool to um uh, discuss the um experience and like some of the um hands like for the most part, I was primarily just folding because they were making like ridiculous um straddles from various positions I think you can straddle under the gun and also from the button um and then almost every hand's multi-way nobody's three betting it's just like it's kind of a weird situation and that sort of environment is gonna um have me play fairly tight so honestly i ended up playing 23 percent of hands i think i probably should have played like 15 but i did get a hand where i opened uh i opened king's early position uh and i believe i believe that was a straddle and i like i forexed it because that's what everybody else was doing and they didn't seem to um care that my raise size was big or that my range was tight or that I was opening under the gun and they were going to give it away anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I opened the guy who I've been tar- targeting the entire game. Three bets me with tens gives back around to me. I just call. I'm already the knit opening on the gun. I don't want to four bet on top of that. Um, Sorry. What did you say your hand was? Pocket Kings. Okay. And he's kind of an aggressive player who's uh, been bluffing a lot. So I just want to keep all his air in the range. I call the board is like seven, seven deuce or something. Some very low board, he makes a bet. It's kind of a small bet. I call, uh, it's probably a decent size for that driver board. And then luckily the turn card is another low card. And then he, he just like bombed the turn. Like I want to say, wasn't pot. I think he probably bet like 250 into like 300, maybe 350. And he only had like 100 behind. And then now when this happens in my mind, I was like, fuck, I guess he's got aces or kings, Uh, but I'm not folding kings here uh, because he could also be bluffing. And uh, I I was actually going to call again and let him bluff on the river until I realized he didn't have much behind. So once I figured that out, and it took me a while because I don't play live, I'm trying to count the stacks and everything. And the commentators are kind of like wondering what I'm doing when I'm like not insta-jamming over mm-hmm. his big bet there. And it's like, yeah. So I find, when I figured it out he doesn't have much mind, I jam, he snap calls with tens and I and I get a uh, double up that way. And then honestly, I wanted to leave. Not right then, but like I told myself I can only bear this for about two hours because I was bored to tears. And this is about an hour and a half in. So I was, I, before this hand even happened, I told myself I was leaving in two hours. But because of this hand, I was like, fuck, I, I got to stay for another hour now. So, cause I don't want to, you know, be accused of hitting and running. So that forced me to stay uh, more time, but I was comfortable with leaving after that guy reballed and busted again. So I feel like, I don't owe anything to the other players at the table. This guy punted his stack to me, so I feel like I owe him an opportunity to maybe punt another stack to me in an, <laughs> attempt, to try, <laughs> in an attempt to try to get his money back. But once he's bust and he's out of the game, now I don't have any shame about hitting and running because I don't owe the rest of these players anything. Yeah, So that's basically how he ended for me. Nice. Well, I'm glad that it was, I was uh, expecting comments about dust on my chips or something like that because that's <laughs> a, that's kind of like the common comment I get whenever I played in like cash games um, and private cash games. But um, yeah, for for I got to give the people credit. Like maybe it's just um, local scenes are, are better because people know each other or something. But I feel like I've had a much worse time playing in Vegas where it's just like various tourists from around the world co- converging on the city. And like, I don't know, it just seems like it's more, I don't want to use the word cutthroat, uh, but something a little bit less uh severe than that, where they were fine. Like, okay, so here's another thing. I was the only person at the table with a mask. I expected comments about that. Nobody cared. Nobody cared about that where I played some, um, some games in Vegas where people kind of like talk shit under their breath about that Mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, about the fact that I'm playing pretty tight or that I'm not laughing at the jokes or being involved in the conversations like down here, nobody gave a shit. They just let me do my thing to the point where it made it, it made it bearable. And if I ever need money, (laughs) I'll play in this game (laughs) again, but it wasn't fun enough. uh, It wasn't as fun as some of the online tournaments I can play and get the same uh, sort of profit, but it was kind of a neutral environment for me where that's kind of a, that's that's saying a lot because uh, most live tournaments, I mean, live cash games I played have been more of a negative environment. Well, I'm glad it was at least not
0: negative and uh, and lucrative as well. Yes, yes. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about from, from Jacksonville?
1: I will say that this is my first time in Jacksonville, other than just passing through, going to Southern Florida. And um, I do not approve of the roads around here. (laughs) Driving in Jacksonville, like up until I got to Jacksonville, I would say it's been like a three-way tie between Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio about how hard it is for a non-local to drive. On those um, interstates or expressways, I don't, I don't know what the hell the right term is for these sort of roads, but um, yeah, it's hard as hell to drive in Jacksonville, man. It's definitely Texas like, where uh, coming from Atlanta, Atlanta's interstates is basically uh, a circle, and like a circle with like a couple of lines through it. It's fairly easy to get, get anywhere. You don't have these spots where you're trying to use the GPS. This is what happens in Jacksonville and a lot of Texas cities. You're trying to use a GPS and it's like, take this exit. So you get to no, you, the on route, you get on the, the expressway or whatever it's called. And then the GPS immediately tells you get off on the exit four lanes over and 0.3 miles oh and yeah it was like fuck how am i gonna how am i gonna cross four lanes at 0.3 miles nobody's letting me over like i've missed so many exits when i'm driving in these sort of places and jacksonville is kind of like that yeah and so uh yeah didn't enjoy driving to the casino um, but uh, i didn't mind so much being in the casino
0: As many of you have probably heard by now, we are sponsored by GTO Wizard, which means a few things. Uh, it means that we are able to use GTO Wizard to better answer your questions and our strategy questions as well in our strategy segments and on Thinking Poker Daily, which I guess this will just be a plug on a plug, Um, certainly (laughs) encourage all of you who have not already to sign up uh, to our Patreon for as little as $5 a month. You can get access to daily strategy segments from us. You can get that at patreon.com slash Thinking Poker Daily. And the new perk of signing up for that is you also will be entered into uh, a drawing to win a free one-month starter membership at GTO Wizard. Uh, We are going to be giving away two of those for every one of these episodes that we do. One is drawn from all of our subscribers at large, and one is drawn from our supernets. So we do have the names of the winners for this episode, uh Joseph Fabiano and Chris Hayward. Uh, and this is exciting because these are both people that uh I know. I guess you know, you know Chris also but um I know both of these folks. So Joseph in fact is one of the very first people I ever played live poker with uh, way back right after I graduated uh high school when I was living in Boston. Um he was playing in a home game that uh that that, that was how I met him and then I guess he uh, has gotten back into poker and uh, is you know Listener to our show, so thank you and congratulations, Joe. Congratulations, Chris, yeah, as well. Also, you, you are also meaningful to me, Chris.
1: Yeah, Chris is meaningful in that for people who don't know, um, Chris was one of our very first Thinking Poker daily subscribers. And he was also in at the highest level from the very beginning. He's been at that level for the entire time. So back when we were just kind of, you know, getting our sea legs together, like, you know, Chris was helping keep this thing afloat. So if you're enjoying the show, you uh, should thank Chris for being one of the uh, uh, the first founding members of the uh, of our patrons.
0: Yeah, great point. Uh, so once again, if you want to get in on the action and help to support us as well, uh, patreon.com slash And Joe and Chris, uh, please check your emails and or your Patreon messages. Uh, so we'll need a little information from you to get you signed up at GTO Wizard. Our strategy question is coming to us from William and this is actually a follow up to our strategy discussion from episode 388 which and this is uh, <laughs> relevant to your recent experience playing in a live cash stream game. The question was about like how to respond to larger than like standard or or gto uh, open raise sizes. So it's becoming more and more popular to look at a tool like gto wizard or, you know and there's quite a few of these out there uh, to get a sense of like what should my opening range be from various positions and then also like how should i respond to opens from from various positions and I think, you know, if, if these tools are great, but you do have to know how to use them. And I think one thing that throws a lot of people off is, you know, a lot of these things are calibrated around like a min raise or a 2.5 X raise. And if you're playing in a game where people are opening like four, five, six times the big blind, uh, you're not just going to be able to like copy and paste those ranges out of GTO wizard or anywhere else and expect that they're going to perform uh, I mean it wouldn't be the end of the world but like they're not going to perform optimally right? like literally they're they're that's not the solution like that's a solution to a different game than the one that you're currently playing so the thing you need to think about is like how should I um how should I deviate from what those charts are telling me and what we were talking about on episode 388 and I guess I should take the blame for this uh you know I asserted that the larger raise size is going to disincentivize three betting to some degree and encourage calling, and that's not wrong, especially given the way that I, I clarified it. But there is an important exception to this, and it is something that comes up quite often. So the, the argument that I made at the time was that part of the reason when you're when you're three betting from the field, meaning from any spot other than the big blind, which is getting to our exception, when you're three betting in a spot other than the big blind. A substantial part of the work that that three bet is doing is driving out players behind you. So if the original raise is small and you just call it, now other people are starting to get a quite good price to come into the pot and and have position on you and the original raiser. In the case of you know most of the players at the table, or in the case of the the blinds, they're just getting like very good pot odds to, to come in and call, and it's in your interest to deny equity to those people if you're going to enter the pot at all. So The, the smaller the original raise is, if, if you are not already in the big blind yourself, or to some degree on the button, you have a lot of incentive to to 3-bet so that those people behind you aren't getting a good price. Uh, but what William asked and someone else asked me this question uh, or a similar question as well is when you are in the big blind um, and, and someone even even showed me a sim to back this up when you are in the big blind you're actually doing more three betting and less calling compared to facing a, a smaller race. and. The way that I would explain that is that um, now there's not that incentive anymore. Like if, if you're if everyone else is folded, you're the only player left, and, and you're closing the action from the big blind, then three betting no longer has that additional value of. Um, of pushing people out, and so in in a heads up pot, when you when you're facing with a small raise, three betting is like somewhat less appealing than it would be from other spots because you're not pushing other people out of the pot anymore. Three betting is much more about just how does your range rub up against the range of the original raiser, and calling is also very very appealing in this spot. So you know when you're facing a small raise and you're in the big blind, you're closing the action. Calling is just like really 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 nice. So as as this raise starts getting larger, calling becomes somewhat less appealing from the big blind. It's not necessarily that three betting is getting better. I mean, three betting is the three bet is still more expensive, but I mean overall you're just going to be v pipping less when you're facing a larger raise. But relatively more of your v pips are, are three bets now, just because calling is less like because the original raise is not as. Um, is is not as small anymore calling becomes somewhat less good from the the big blind and consequently uh, three betting becomes relatively more appealing so yeah it's, it's not so much that the three betting is getting better as it is that the calling is getting worse and from other positions that that's not true because there is like the the you don't need the three bet as much in order to discourage callers behind you because the the larger original raise size is already offering them less good price
1: yeah. The other thing that kind of jumps out to me here, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on this is once the race size is so big that calling becomes less appealing, you got to look for like appealing things in other areas when you're in this situation. And some appealing things that a three bet will provide that a call won't is decreasing the SPR and decreasing your opponent's positional uh, advantage um, that he's going to have with the higher SPR and also just um, maybe completely eliminating your positional disadvantage uh, by getting foals, um, which of course you can't get when you call, but you can get when you three bet. So if you can just three bet and take it down pre, that's a good thing when you're out of position, especially very deep stack, or even if you get called being out of position with the lower SPR is also a good thing. So uh, we can't get the goodness that comes from calling, getting a great price, but we can like, you know, decrease some of these advantages that our opponent in position will have on us by doing more three betting given facing the bigger bet. Yeah, that's a good way of putting
0: that. Uh, So thank you, William, for that question. And I apologize if my previous response was uh, unclear or at least incomplete. Um, anything else you want to say on that topic?
1: Yeah, just quickly because this kind of reminds me of something that we discussed on a uh, um, recent Thinking Poker Daily episode. I do worry when I like when we say, "Hey, if you're facing these big bets, three bet more than you call." Um, people who like to play hands might take that the wrong way and just start three betting, like you know, twenty or thirty percent uh, of, of hands or something. You got to realize that. You want to three bet more often than you call but that's after you've already adjust your range for the size of the open. So I don't know these exact numbers, but say if the guy min raises, you get to play, I don't know, 50% of hands, just completely pulling that number out of the air. So don't take it as gospel. If the guy four X's or five X's, maybe now you only get to play 30% of hands or 20% of hands. So you still are going to fall more often, but of that range that you're playing, you're going to three bet more of that range, but you're not going to three bet. More of the same fifty percent range you would have been play you would have been playing versus the men raise. When the first raise size is bigger, your folding range should get bigger as well, and then you just play the playing range differently um, after that point. Yeah, that's
0: that's a great point. I, I I think I said in passing like you're going to be pip less, but I, I mean I, that's really the most important thing. <laughs> like, when you're facing a big raise, yeah. <laughs> you will be pip less often than you will versus small raise. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you put a point on that speaking of playing from the big blind um, I actually have a hand that I've uh, so I've been in the habit one of the things you can do with GTO Wizard is you can run an entire hand history through it and um and, like you know after you've you've played you can like run an entire tournament's worth of hand histories through there and there's a few spots that it can't really generate like a good model for but you know it, it'll just kind of give you feedback and it'll flag hands that you could have um you could have played better or at least that, that it thinks you could have played better and th- again like this isn't gospel and, and i will you know look at the hands where it thinks i lost tv and sometimes i'll be like oh no i had a good reason for doing that and that's fine but then there are things that surprise me and this is one of the ones that um surprised me although i guess when i shared it with you you were somewhat less <laughs> surprised by these results but um it, it surprised me that that i uh well I'll, I'll just give you the hand so this was in um what tournament was this I don't remember. It was, it was some ACR, Sunday tournament. I don't remember which one. Uh, we're, we're in the money, kind of shallowly in, in the money. I have 20 big blinds. Uh, I'm in the big blind. I have King-10 offsuit. I also have the King of Diamonds, which will end up becoming slightly significant. Uh, average stack is probably like 25-ish big blinds. The action folds around to the button, who has 23 big blinds. The button min raises the small blind folds. And now the action is on me and the big blind. Uh, Again, I have King 10 off. I have actually have 19 blinds after after posting. Um, So I have 19 blinds. I call with King 10.
1: Is that at all controversial? Um, I don't think so. Uh, Honestly, might just jam this. But I think calling is also an option here. Yeah. For what it's worth, the options that GTO Wizards is considering here are
0: um, call Three betting to five, three betting to seven, or shoving for twenty. Uh, and it, it's giving call the highest EV of those with one point two four. Uh, shoving for twenty has an EV of one point one, um, and then, you know folding obviously would be zero. But uh, so it it, yeah, it, it, it does prefer uh, calling to shoving.
1: Yeah, this is one of those exact spots where you were talking about where it might suggest one thing and then you'll say, Oh, I have, you know, my <laughs> reasons for doing this. And, uh, and maybe those reasons aren't great on ACR because the average opponent is better. But what I find in the games that I tend to play is that people can open fairly well but they just don't call correctly uh, facing jams in these spots. Like you have people mm. opening the button with like 50% of the hands. And when they face this jam, they're calling out for like 10%. So I'm jamming that almost as an exploit as against their player type. But I do know I've played, I've when I first started playing on WSOP.com against some better opponents and I was coming in with this strategy I was getting snapped by the kind of hands that I'm supposed to get snapped by. And yeah, in that environment, I probably would um just call like um GTO would suggest.
0: Okay. Well, you know, I think calling also makes sense. The the more like confident you feel in your ability to, to play post-flop and not make mistakes, um, then the more of an argument there is for calling. And I maybe had too much confidence in my ability because I <laughs> uh probably misplayed this hand after the flop. Uh, So, I did call, and the flop is ace of hearts, nine of diamonds, eight of diamonds. And I, again, have king 10 with the king of diamonds. So, I do have a backdoor flush draw for the king. Uh, It's not the nut flush draw, because the ace (coughs) that's on the board is not a diamond. Uh, So, ace nine, eight is the flop, I have king 10, I'm playing as big blind versus button. I start with a check, I think that's not at all close on a board like this. The button, C-bets one-third pot. Um, I called here and I'll give you my reasons, although you will know, we'll say this is a a small mistake where GTA Wizard is concerned, and, and I think you were in agreement with that. Um, I was essentially just thinking, like, okay, button versus big blind, you know, it's it's both people's ranges are pretty wide. I don't have a lot of ASX in my range. Like I've uh, uh, I mean, we we're talking about shoving King 10 preflop. like most ASX is gonna be a good jam here, like 20 big blinds, big blind versus button. So I'm not gonna have a lot of ASX in my range, period. Um The best unpaired hands are going to be pretty good. King High is one of the best unpaired hands. I have uh, multiple backdoor straight draws. I have a backdoor flush draw. It it just kind of a lot of rough heuristics were kind of like this hand is is pretty high up in my range. It seems to have decent playability on later streets. It's a small bet facing a player um, who who has a wide range. It just seemed uh, too good to fold uh, as far as I was concerned.
1: Yeah, I, def- I definitely understand that feeling. But when we we talked about this off air and I think we kind of like found some, like some of the reasons behind our GTO Wizard strategy. But I think this, this conversation will be enlightening for a lot of listeners.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, one of the the assumptions that I put in there that is wrong is the idea that this hand is going to have decent playability on later streets. The thing that I said about I'm not going to have a lot of ASX in my range, that kind of just means I'm I'm screwed on this board in general. <laughs> like yeah. it's very yeah. difficult for me to um, you know, like when I have when I have King Ten. I think a useful way of, of thinking about a, a flop. Call is like, what are you hoping for on the next street? You know, what what are like the best case scenarios for you on the next street? So here we can kind of put that into buckets of like a king, a 10, a diamond, or a card that's giving me uh, an open ended strike draw. You know, those are the various ways I could improve my hand. I mean, obviously there's gut shots as well, but like all of those things that I rattled off there, um, I still don't have a hand I feel that good about if I face another bet. Like, let's say, you know, best case scenario, I hit the king. I check and then my opponent bets, you know, geometric away the size that would enable them to potentially shove the river. Like I already just have a bluff catcher and a bluff catcher that's like it's doing very <laughs> poorly against the ASX portion of his range. And he has a lot of AC. Like as a button raiser, maybe, he maybe open shoves some of his ASX with off of, like twenty 20- 23, whatever big blinds. But I mean, he has a lot of X in his range, and I don't have any. And so I have very little. So he just gets to do a lot of betting here. And like, even if he's doing a lot of bluffing, um, it's still just like, I can't really realize my equity that well with King 10 because against the, the value portion of his range, I am drawing very, very thinly. And, you know, if the turn is a diamond or the turn gives me an open ended straight draw, like I can try to. I mean, check call again or check shove. I mean, none of those are like that—that that good about. Like, if I check shove, I'm probably just getting called by all of his aces anyway. I'm making the only hands that I'm making him fold are hands that don't have very good equity against me. But if I call, I miss most rivers, and then even when I do have the best hand, I often get bluffed out if he shoves the river. Um, the very best case scenarios of like backdooring a flush or backdooring a straight. By the time we get to the river, um, which is you know when I I, I can't. I can't turn a strong hand. Right? I, I can river very strong hands. By the time we get to the river, most of the money is going to be in the pot already. Like He gets a barrel to turn so often that by the time we get to the river, like, OK, congratulations, you made like the nuts or <laughs> the second nuts or whatever. But I can't make the nuts, I, the, the second nuts. Um, but now, and then now you can win like a half pot bet and, oh. <laughs> and imply that. Congratulations. Like, as far as best case scenarios go, uh, it's, it's just not good enough. So I think that the problem is the sand just has very poor equity realization, right? Equity wise, I have like 35 ish percent equity against his betting range and facing a third pot bet. You know, if, if this were an all in bet, you know, I could I could happily call it, I would only need twenty-five percent equity to call. The problem is my equity realization is so poor that despite having that like thirty-five percent equity, I, I'm not even gonna realize twenty-five percent of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um a couple of things happen here. Um, uh, one of which you kind of already identified, you're more or less drawing to a bluff catcher against a range that has all the strong hands where you have almost none. Like you don't have any top pairs. Um, you can never have a set here because I think you're going to jam most of the small pairs pre. And um, I guess the best hand you can have is like the two pair that doesn't contain the ace. But beyond that, you're kind of like screwed to like second pair. Even if you even if you call with this hand to hit, you're still kind of like capped at second pair. Uh, so you're in a pretty bad spot. And I think what happened to you here is... I don't know if it's like your cash game brain or like your GTO book writing brain uh, uh, was like focused on, you didn't use these exact words, but minimum defense frequency. When you talked about, you know, King high is going to be the best hand I have here. And, you know, uh, so for that reason, I might, not it's going to be one of the best hands i have here so for that reason i probably should call with it facing um i imagine this was a small bet i don't remember what size i think you said yeah yeah so one thing that we talked about off of the podcast is um when you have almost no good hands in your range and your opponent has all the good hands in his range and he has a p- positional advantage, you don't need to meet minimum defense frequency because his advantage is just so strong that you uh, um, uh, he just gets to overperform his equity. In fact, another thing that we talked about on a recent uh, Thinking Poker Daily episode that I kind of like warned the listeners about would have been helpful for you here as well, which is, uh, one of my rules of thumb is don't try so hard to win a pot that you're not supposed to win. Because if you do that, you make your losses so big that when you actually do win the pots that you're supposed to win, that's not enough to cover those losses and give you a profit. So sometimes trying too hard to win these sort of pots is how you end up losing money. So I think that's what happened to you here. And also though, you made a great point about, you know, even when you hit the draw, is great. You're probably going to win a hand, but it's not going to make up for all the times you miss because the SPR is so low. You don't have great implied, implied odds on this draw. So I think all those reasons combined means that once you make this call pre-flop and you see this flop in your mind, you just got to realize like this is such a great spot for my opponent that I don't need to um, defend myself as much as I would have to on a different sort of board yeah that that's a good point.
0: I would say the I mean the, the minimum defense frequency never applies when you're playing like big blind heads up against a, a pre-flop razor like they always come in with a with a big range advantage. I think the the general heuristic of like recognizing when a hand is is toward the top of your range is is still a useful one. but how close to the top matters a lot and I, I think the the broader point, which is what I'm what I'm missing is the um or what I missed in this case is this is like you don't get you're just going to have to do a lot of folding on this flop. Like, this is just a—it's just a good flop for your opponent, and not. I mean, you're always folding at a higher than minimum defense frequency when you're def, uh, yeah. facing a bet, but this one is going to be like more higher than usual. <laughs> um, you, there's just like all you can do is is kind of wave the white flag, and it, it feels that feels weird because like ace high flops are the most common flops, so it feels kind of weird to be like, oh, on on the most common flop, I'm just going to be like waving the white flag. <laughs> And the the reason for that though is just that like shoving preflop is so profitable, which is kind of back to your point of like maybe you should just shove the king 10 preflop. Like <laughs> it's just e- even knowing that like if you did actually have an ace, your implied odds would be like pretty decent on an ace side board. Like if, if your opponent does correctly, just like bet quite often on these boards and does a lot of bluffing, obviously like ace or you know having a pair of bases where you're blocking their value hands is going to be a lot more. Uh, valuable as a call down than having like king high or even like second pair. Um, so, even knowing that, like, okay, it's going to be like kind of profitable to just peel with, uh, I don't know, ace three offsuit and like check call and ace high boards or something, it's still, it's like even more profitable to shove those hands pre flop. This is like the power of getting all in pre flop and being able to shove and have that fold equity, especially in a tournament where you you'd, um, you really value the Like shoving is the lower variance option. I think that's a it's a weird thing to yes. wrap your head around because you're like you're putting all your chips in the pot. But what I'm signing up for here is just like pretty consistently losing one big blind. Sometimes, as in this case, like losing another third pot bet as a result of like a, a thin, arguably bad uh, flop call. I you know, I ended up folding to a bet on a blank turn. But yeah, it's just like like that's actually you know rather than bleeding away chips, you want to be kind of like consistently adding small amounts of chips to your pot, to your stack with with minimal risk. And and shoving is actually not high risk. Like It's not very likely you're going to get called <laughs> when you shove. The button doesn't have a hand to call 20 big blinds with that often. And, and it, it, the wider they do call, then like, you know, King 10 does not perform badly against like Ace Jack or Ace Queen, even the pocket nines. Like even some of the better hands that could call you, you're still in a decent shape against those. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that. Shoving would have been better than calling and just playing well <laughs> after the flop, but it does get to the point of why uh there's not really the incentive to peel with a lot of like ASX uh,
1: from from the big blind.
0: And I mean when you're when you're shallow enough to shove.
1: Yeah, it's hard to play well. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to play well post flop, uh having all these disadvantages. And here's the thing. Here's a here's a way you can like identify these sort of situations is to find the good hands you get to the flop you see this flop and you just i uh, just like kind of rattle off in your head like the the first 10 like the first nut second nuts, third nuts, all the way down to like 10 and if you do that and you realize you don't have any of these hands in your range <laughs> you have to drastically over i mean under the fin post-flop here so like you said minimum defense frequency never applies in these sort of situations but it's just like when you don't have any strong hands in your range, because you would have played all those hands pre-flop, that effect is just much higher than it normally is.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for your help with this. Any last uh, beratement?
1: No, no. um, I would say um, you don't have much of a choice on this right now, but my my advice is just like, you know, hey, play soft for games. Don't have to deal with this kind of stuff. Play play people, play, and again, like I said, this is what I do. Play against people. Raise 50% of hands on the button and call off with 10%. You can probably jam three to soft on those people properly.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for your help. Thank you everyone for listening. And once again, you can support us at patreon.com slash thinking Poker Daily, and you get great strategy segments like this. Uh, as many as five days a week.
2: The devotion of a car, my light of the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't, you won't, you won't, will you? You won't, you won't, you won't, you? You, won't you won't, will you? You won't, you won't.